recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christianity.org. Today is Friday, February 7th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today I'm going to do something a little different. Usually my habit is to write an article and then present it later on down the road in a podcast. Today, I shall reverse that process. Here is the next Saxon Messenger editorial, an issue which commemorates 100 years of the Federal Reserve System. It turned 100 on December 23rd. I'm running behind. I apologize for that. I can't help it. I want to say a few things first about the lost chapter of Acts. I talked about that on last week's program, and one thing I overlooked, and, and I didn't have any time to prepare for that program, being stuck on the road in, in beautiful downtown Charleston, South Carolina, is Acts, um, well, well, I'm not going to call this Acts chapter 29. It, it's really a Jew hoax. I hope to have discredited it last week. It's the um, 21st verse of the manuscript where it says, and Paul was, and while Paul was yet speaking, behold, there came a great earthquake, and the face of the waters was changed, and the form of the lake, like into the Son of Man, hanging in agony upon the cross. And first, this is a straight fairy tale. The the Lake Lucerne, I believe it is, that's... To imagine that the lake changed shape because Paul stretched his hands out upon the water on his way to Italy, and, and well, well, the whole thing is ridiculous, but what I wanted to bring up, and, and what I wish I had included in last week's program, what was this, um, th- th- this reveling over the agony of Christ upon the cross, well, whenever you see that, to, to me, from my perspective, whenever you see anybody glorifying the agony of Christ or, or, or um, celebrating that, that, that's, well, that's just what the Jews love. Christians should celebrate the resurrection of Christ, understanding the suffering, but celebrating the resurrection. And to me, it's, it, it's really a... Um, a red flag when I see any piece of literature celebrating the agony of Christ and not celebrating the resurrection. That, that's just a, a side note. I, I had somebody, he's actually a, a man who is, um, well, well, he's a good and noble man. I'm not going to condemn him whatsoever. But, but he had brought up to me after last week's program that this um, Joet book, George Joet or whatever his name is. It, it's a British Israel book. It's called Drama of the Lost Disciples. He asked me if I ever read it, and well, no, I haven't read it. But um, not not to my remembrance anyway. I have read a lot of. I did read a lot of British Israel books early in my Christian identity studies, and a lot of them. A lot of them are, well, they're fantastic, or, or they have fantastic things in them. I read As Birds Flying, which is a crazy interpretation of, um, 
a prophecy in Isaiah, which was clearly fulfilled in Scripture and not in 1917. Yahweh our God is not going to, um, to gloriously defend those kike bastards in Jerusalem by any means. Well, the, the um, British Israel literature quite often went overboard. And George Joette, I believe, is an example. And he claims that all these ancient um, Christian writers support the idea that Paul preached in Britain, when actually, I can't find that anywhere in any of the ancient Christian writers. There is one instance in a letter of Clement to the Corinthians which says that Paul spoke in the extreme west, the extreme limits of the west, which many people interpret as Britain, but from an, from an Egyptian or an Eastern perspective, that interpretation isn't necessary, and I won't accept that as referring to Britain unless I have explicit corroborating evidence, and that as far as I've ever seen, does not exist. Does it bother me that Paul never spoke in Britain? Well, of course it doesn't. But as I detailed in my presentation of Acts, especially my presentation of Acts chapter 28, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever except for one interpretation of 2 Timothy chapter 4 by Eusebius. And that's only his conjecture. It's only an interpretation which is not necessary whatsoever. That Paul was released from prison in Rome, as I discussed in, in, in my Acts chapter 28 presentation, it's fully evident from Paul's epistles that he beckoned Timothy to Rome, that Timothy came to Rome, and once Timothy arrived in Rome, Paul's remaining epistles associated Timothy with him as, well, what would have been in Roman practice, as his successor to his ministry. That would be the reason why he associated Timothy with him. He expected to die, as he said in 2 Timothy, he said that his time is near, that he ran the race, he, he considered his ministry to be over, and ostensibly it was upon his second defense of Christianity and his execution by Nero. Now, now those things are scarcely documented in history, but Luke said Paul spent two years in Rome. Luke never gives, gives us any evidence whatsoever that Paul spent two years with, in Rome and left Rome living. There's no evidence of that whatsoever, not in Luke, not in Acts, not in any of Paul's epistles. And there's nothing explicit in a contemporary document or, or in an, an early enough document that, that by which we can ascertain that Paul left Rome alive. So, so I'll leave that at that. If somebody wants to pull, George Joette says, oh, so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said that, but he gives no citations. If somebody has citations, I will gladly check them out. And if I have to in the face of evidence, surely I, I, I would um, change my attitude concerning this. 
but not without concrete evidence. That's just the way it is. That, that's how we should always be in the face of these things. We should be willing to change in the face of Scripture and in the face of concrete evidence, but not somebody's conjecture or, or some wishful thinking on, on the part of these that these British Israel writers, a lot of them had a lot more zeal than they had scruples. And, and that can be demonstrated in many ways. Slavery for a hundred years and longer. And those words are important. It, it's, a, it's a crying shame that our people do not realize that they are slaves and we'll talk about some of the reasons for that later on. In the United States, the Federal Reserve turned 100 years old this December, an event which the institution itself commemorated, and which is mentioned in several articles on its own websites. While it was also celebrated to some degree in the mass media, there was little mass media criticism of the Fed's 100-year history. In fact, outlets such as USA Today actually celebrated the outgoing Fed chairman and, and chief robber. And in an article entitled, Five Things You Didn't Know About the 100-Year-Old Fed, while it justly blames the institution for events such as the Great Depression, oh, the Fed made mistakes and, and, and now they're better, it portrays even that in the best possible light. However, this USA Today article, in its last item in the list of these five things, and the only one of the five which is relevant to current events, celebrates the Fed's recent introduction of digital check-clearing technology as if that's the most important thing that happened to the Federal Reserve in the last 30 years. Conservative estimates of the potential cost to taxpayers of the recent bank bailouts orchestrated by the Federal Reserve run from $9 trillion, according to the New York Times, to over $12 trillion, according to PBS.org, to $14 trillion, according to CNN.com, to as much as 29 and this is the more realistic number, $29 trillion, according to CNBC. But all that USA Today has to discuss concerning the Fed on its 100th birthday in this era is the inevitable adoption of digital check clearing. That's it. That's what they're feeding these sheeple. If most Americans are ignorant, and it can be demonstrated that they certainly are, it is because they are too trusting of the media by which they expect to be informed. Reporting on the Fed's anniversary by most of the other major media outlets seems sterile, to say the least. And with a few exceptions, apparently none of them ever challenge the nonsensical idea that the Federal Reserve is a legitimate institution concerned with the national interest. There were some mainstream organizations 
which published articles commemorating the Fed's anniversary and which could not describe the Federal Reserve as a success. Uh, I'm actually rather surprised. In mentioning the event, Forbes magazine rather boldly derided the Fed as a rogue entity, which has failed the stated purpose of, the, of its founding. Well, well, they actually stated the obvious, but I was surprised they stated it. In a presumably balanced academic paper, the Cato Institute has attempted to quantify the Fed's failures. The Huffington Post ran an article lamenting that it is time to make the Fed a public utility. Sadly, most Americans have always believed that the Fed is a public utility, or at least a government agency. Even one economist, a Jew named Feldstein, cited in the aforementioned Cato Institute study, I think it's at the bottom of page two, wrongly considers the Fed to be a public institution. So we have Jewish economists telling the public that the Fed is a public institution, and they're lying through their teeth. In truth, the Federal Reserve is not federal at all, and it is not a reserve. It is a quasi-public institution which is owned by the banks. Real criticisms of the Fed from mainstream media outlets are few, and most of the articles which do criticize it do not challenge its legitimacy, nor do they imagine that its true allegiance is to the international bankers who have no care for the average American or for America as a nation. Now, now I realize as I'm presenting this that most of my audience, of course, understands all of this, I wrote this article so that hopefully it could be circulated to, to people in the general public, and not only would they hear this about the Federal Reserve, but towards the end of this article, I will present the biblical reasons why this is happening. The Federal Reserve Act empowered a mechanism by which bankers may create virtually unlimited funds out of nothing, simply by getting other entities to agree to borrowing those funds, funds which don't exist until you sign on the bottom, on the bottom line. The printing or coining of paper and metal currency are a process independent of the creation of currency, which has other forms. While the purpose of this article is not to describe the details of this wicked system, it must be mentioned that the United States government is by far the Fed's largest borrower. This arrangement has allowed the United States government access to unlimited funding for all of its endeavors because if the government actually printed as much money as they borrowed from the Fed, wow, there probably would be a revolution because the money would be absolutely worthless, a lot more worthless than it is now. In truth, the United States could indeed print currency instead of bonds and distribute the currency. Adolf Hitler did it, and he, he did very well. Now, the argument against that is that the banks overseas won't accept the currency. Well, Adolf Hitler got around that. If you wanted to import goods into Germany, you exported goods from Germany, period. And to hell with the banks. 
Germany thrived under that system. That's why Hitler had to be destroyed. Before 1913, Americans generally kept 100% of their paychecks. An income tax was nearly imposed to pay for the War of 1812. And, well, the war ended before the tax got a foothold. And another income tax was later imposed under Lincoln to help pay for the war between the states. These taxes were temporary and levied for specific purposes. In 1894, another income tax was imposed, which the Supreme Court struck down a year later because of the unconstitutionality of the method of taxation. The 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which was allegedly ratified just in time for the creation of the Federal Reserve, Imagine that. Afforded Congress the ability to create income taxes as it saw fit, overcoming that 1895 Supreme Court decision. The timing of these actions is not a coincidence. The government could not pour itself off to the bankers without a method by which it could obligate the people to pay for the cost of such pandering. Since 1913, Americans have been burdened not only with quite oppressive income taxes, but also with a host of other taxes, many of which are relatively new. Among these are taxes for property, schools, licenses, excise taxes, consumption taxes, transportation, communications, payroll, and inheritance taxes. These are the major categories, and a never-ending host of more specific taxes, such as those on alcohol, fuel, utilities, burden the people much more oppressively, although many of those taxes are barely noticed. They increase everything, the prices of everything that we buy or consume. While the various states and local governments always sought ways to raise funds for their own administration, and, and different states had different schemes, some states had excise taxes, some states had property taxes, some states had both, or, or, or more than that, it was still local, lo, local rule, and, and, and the people of the state determined for themselves how they wanted to support the administration of their state and how much administration they wanted to support in the first place. If the average American thinks he is free, that again is only because he entrusts that same media to keep him informed of his situation. Most of our modern taxes were unknown before 1913, and every year, every government finds new and more creative ways to extract revenue from the people. The banks and the international corporations, which own and control the mass media, have benefited handsomely from their investments. In truth, Americans have been enslaved for a hundred years. If you give half of the money that you earn to the government in one form or another. Yeah, right, your income tax bracket might only be 25%, but you're giving up at least 25% of your income in all of these other hidden taxes, licensing fees, the property taxes that even if you don't own your house are certainly incorporated into your rent. Well, you're paying at least half of your salary, at least half of the money you earn goes to taxes.
Realizing that the Federal Reserve is a private institution with a monopoly on the creation of currency is only half of the awakening process. Realizing that the people who control the banks which own the Federal Reserve are all Jews or agents for Jews is a necessary condition towards gaining a true understanding of the world situation both today and throughout recent history. With the nation's economy ultimately in Jewish hands, almost exclusively, the nation would indeed become an agent for the interest of Jewry. There's no way around that. Thomas Edison invented the phonograph in 1877 and the movie camera in 1888. The first significant movie which had a lasting effect on American culture, and it was very pro-white movie, was D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, shown in the Wilson White House and shown to the public in 1915. From that time forward, there was not much space left for truly American media. Once the Jewish bankers came to the control of America's currency, they also quickly came to be the masters of the newly developing film, radio, and television industries, all of which required large financial investments in order to become successful. If the Jews are controlling the Federal Reserve, if the Jews, if all the big banks or in the hands of Jews, where do you think the investments in these industries is going to be directed? Whites need not apply. While the Jews had already been proportionally overrepresented amongst the influential personalities of the 19th century print media, they would almost totally control the burgeoning 20th century electronic media. At the same time, a new generation of Bibles being printed were being printed which totally changed the nation's religious attitudes towards Jews. Historically, Christians were always ambivalent towards Jews because Christianity demands them to be ambivalent towards those who hate Christ. Generations of European Christians fully understood the Jews to be the Antichrist. Such an attitude amongst Christians could not be tolerated as it made it difficult for Jews to gain acceptance. The Schofield Bible first appeared in 1909, and it was financed by the Jew Samuel Untermeyer. Bullinger's Companion Bible appeared that same year. That's not a coincidence. Bullinger was a good friend of Theodore Herzl, a Jew considered to be the father of Jewish Zionism, and he was fully in bed with the Jews. And many of his Bible notes were derived from the Masoretic rabbis. Presaging Bullinger's publication of the Companion Bible was the publication of the Jewish Tanakh by a Jew who bore the offensive name of Christian David Ginsburg. That was his name. 
Bullinger had a substantial role in that publication, working closely with Ginsburg and other Jews as the secretary of the Trinitarian Bible Society in Britain. With Schofield, Bullinger, and the heavy infiltration of many significant American seminaries by Jews, Christianity, at the same time that Jews are taking over the newly emerging electronic media, at the same time that the Federal Reserve Act is passed, Christianity would be soon safe for Jewry and becoming Jewish supremacy over all Christian nations. In English-speaking nations, before the First World War, there was a propaganda campaign which was begun on a grand scale which was designed to win sympathy in the English-speaking world for the allegedly oppressed Jewish people of Europe. Here is an excerpt from an article which is highly illustrative of this propaganda. I actually have quite a bit of this type of literature on the Mein Kampf site, but this one excerpt from one article from one newspaper it, is, it should be enough to make our point here. It ran in the Mercury, a newspaper in Hobart, Australia, on December 4th, 1915. With a few spelling corrections, this is posted along with a facsimile of the original at the Christiania Mein Kampf project. I quote, December 4th, 1915, 15, the Hobart Mercury. According to information from Russia, the condition of the Jews in Poland is getting daily worse. Russian Poland contains a large number of Jews, a larger number of Jews than all the countries of the world together. And those six millions of Russian and Polish Jews are today the most pitiable victims of that race hatred and that race fanaticism, which had been the creed of Germany and which had been too often propagated by the Jewish publicists themselves. Anti-Semitism has been rife in every country, but only in Germany has it been preached as a systematic doctrine. You might think, if you read this article without being told what it was, you might think it was 1935. This is 1915. To continue, the same national historian, Treitschke, who was the champion of Prussian militarism, has also been the father of German anti-Semitism. That wasn't Hitler, that was Treitschke. And yet, leading Jews like Mixmillian Hardin, Dernberg, and Wolf are still defending the righteous German war, and meaning World War I, and this is the kicker, the last clause, and are still loyal to the super race. That's verbatim. Most Americans would only be familiar with such propaganda, calling Germans the super race, the six million number. Most Americans would only be familiar with that as a product of Jewish media tales concerning Adolf Hitler's Germany. 
The truth is that the stories about the master race, called the super race here, we see in this article from 1915. Those stories are lies perpetrated in order to facilitate Jewish slanders against the German people and to win the common Englishman or American over to the Jewish cause. The media was rife with them, the print media, before and during the First World War. Most Americans, I'm sorry, with the founding of the Federal Reserve came persistent Jewish pressure for America to get involved in the European War, something the founders of this nation, and especially its first president, had strongly warned against. However, American involvement in the First World War was inevitable once the Jews gained control of the American economy. From that time forward, American policy would be guided by Jews from 1913. And they would be held to pay for any politician who resisted their desires. By the time of Franklin Roosevelt, Jews were found in large numbers, not only among his immediate advisors, Bernard Baruch, Felix Frankfurter, but throughout every level of government. The July 10th, 1933 issue of the Milwaukee Journal ran an article on page 8. The article was syndicated from the Boston Globe, <clears throat> which was actually a pretty big syndicator of articles at that time. And they ran this article with the headline, which stated, Barney Baruch, unofficial advisor to the presidents, plural. And they were referring to the Jewish banker, Bernard Baruch. And under the headline, and there'll be a link to this, to this page with this article on Christogenia, posted with the podcast tonight, God willing, under the headline, it stated that since the days of Woodrow Wilson, the New York financier, Barney Baruch, has been a familiar figure at the White House, whether a Democrat or Republican was in power. For 90 years, our people have still thought that there's a difference between Democrats and Republicans. There hasn't been a difference since 1913. It should be no wonder to find Bernard Baruch was an advisor to the White House, whether a Democrat or a Republican was in power. Americans should have been up in arms over the situation against both the government and the media, which gloated right before their very faces. I can't, I can't tell you what happened in 1933 when Americans read this article, but I'll tell you what happened about the situation. Nothing. Roosevelt was elected three more times. Or perhaps two more. This is July 1933. I, am, I apologize. The American people are indeed enslaved to the bankers. 
And they have been for over a hundred years. Every dollar created by the Federal Reserve immediately commands interest upon its creation. And if you think about that, therefore there can never be enough money to pay off a debt which is conjured from nothing. For that reason, there must be a continual inflation of the currency so that money is constantly devalued, while taxes must constantly increase. At some point, the bubble must burst, and the pyramid scheme must collapse. But nobody can tell just when that point is going to be. Most of the nations of Europe, and especially the English, since 1696, I think, off the top of my head, have been enslaved by these same bankers for much longer than the Americans. Imperial Russia was a holdout, and Germany also under Kaiser Wilhelm, and therefore they had to be destroyed. That was the real reason for the First World War. Germany broke free under National Socialism. And for that reason, Hitler also had to be destroyed, and then he was demonized so that no man would follow in his footsteps, so that nobody, if you demonize Adolf Hitler, especially all these clowns pretending to be patriots that insist that Adolf Hitler was a Jew, Adolf Hitler was a Rothschild agent, if you demonize Adolf Hitler, you don't examine Adolf Hitler's policies, you don't learn the key to your freedom. It's that simple. You don't understand truly why Germany was so successful while the rest of the West was amidst the Great Depression and rampant starvation under the thumb of the bankers. If you demonize Adolf Hitler, you're a whore for the Jew. It's that simple. The real reason for the Second World War, Adolf Hitler had to be destroyed. Germany could not maintain its position as a state independent of the Jewish bankers. The lies about the Holocaust were then contrived to keep the world safe for Jewry. I'm going to read a book. I'm, going to re I'm not going to read a book. I'm kidding, right? I'm, <laughs> not quite. I'm going to read from a book, just about a page, page and a half. This book, well, well my, my wife, Melissa, was browsing the, um, the, listing, the book listings at Amazon.com. I, I, I know this book is being advertised now by the Barnes Review, but I haven't looked at a Barnes Review in two years. That the um, Michael Collins Piper, the editor-in-chief, is a faggot, and, and he's an antichrist. So I dropped my subscription to the Barnes Review two years ago, or, or, or probably about, I'm sorry, it, it's longer than that. It's about four years ago now. And and that's because Michael Piper, Michael Piper Collins, well, he's a piper. That's his name. 
I got tired of his antichrist garbage. And 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 other than that, it, it's always been a a um, good good publication for revisionist history. They're advertising this book. I just found this out today. I just found the book today. Melissa found it on Amazon, and she called it to my attention. And this book basically um, professes everything that we would profess about Adolf Hitler in the Second World War and the First World War. From our perspective, this book is, um, it looks like an excellent book. I perused many pages of it this morning. It's called The Myth of German Villainy by Benton L. Bradbury. I'll put a link to that with the posting of this program. This book, I think, is significant because Benton L. Bradbury is not your typical revisionist historian. He doesn't have your typical revisionist background. He's actually a United States Navy pilot from 1955 until 1977, and, and um, he, he gives a lengthy preface, and, and it's interesting, his, his own awakening. This is from Chapter 3 of the book, The Myth of German Villainy, and I'm going to read about a page and a half. It's entitled, the chapter is entitled, The Jewish Factor in the War, and it's talking about World War One. On December 12, 1916, two and a half years into the war, Germany made a peace offer to the Allies to end the war on a status quo ante basis. That is, no one wins and no one loses and no one pays reparations. Everyone just stops fighting and goes back home. Germany had never wanted the war in the first place. By that time, in the course of the war, Germany seemed on the verge of victory. Germany's submarine force had effectively stopped the supply convoys coming from America to Britain, creating critical shortages of all war material in Britain. France had already lost 600,000 men in the battles of Verdun and the Somme and French soldiers were beginning to mutiny. The Italian army had collapsed completely, and Russian soldiers were deserting in droves and returning home. Germany appeared to be winning on both fronts, but the slaughter had been too great, and the British and the French were unwilling to stop fighting short of a victory. The only way to justify the carnage and the horrific loss of life was to fight on until victory could be obtained. Moreover, as explained in the previous chapter, chapter 2 of his book, Britain had entered the war to destroy Germany as an industrial and commercial rival, and that remained her goal. British leaders were determined to find a way to break the stalemate and win the war, and they knew that the one sure way of doing so was to bring America in on their side. A relentless effort was already underway to bring that about, but so far without success. Zionist Jews and the British government had already been finagling behind the scenes over a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Do you think the Schofield and Bulliger Bibles had anything at all to do? with changing the attitudes. And, and they're only reflected because the seminaries, the Dallas Theological Seminary, seminaries in Chicago and New York, had already long been infiltrated by Jews. 
and Jewish thinking. But the Schofield and Bullinger Bibles, that they are certainly reflective, and they were printed maybe seven years before this, six years before this, and they were very popular, and they've been very popular ever since. They've been very popular because the Jews make sure that these Bibles promoting Jews remain on the shelves in every Christian bookstore, remain at the forefront of Bible marketing everywhere. Zenist Jews and the British government had already been finagling behind the scenes over a Jewish homeland in Palestine. In October 1916, two months prior to the German peace offer, a group of Zenist Jews led by Chaim Weizmann, later the first president of Israel, had met with British leaders with the proposition if Britain would guarantee the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine after the war, the Jews would use their influence through powerful Jews in America to bring America into the war on the side of Britain and the Allies, which would assure an Allied victory. These Jews were so confident of their power and influence that they virtually guaranteed that they would be able to achieve this. Well, of course, the Federal Reserve Act passed three years before. At that time, Palestine was under control. Well, well I'm going to stop reading there. We get the gist of it. The Jewish powers were behind America's entry into World War I. The Jews were confident that they could dictate American policy shortly after the passage of the Federal Reserve Act. And I would recommend that book. It looks like a good book. I haven't read it all. I, M Melissa just found it this morning. I've I, I read about three half chapters, and, and it looks good. Every so often, to get back to my own article, Every so often, men wonder why Jews dominate banking and industry and offer inane reasons from a secular perspective. They claim that Jews are smarter, which is not true. They claim that Jews have greater financial acumen, which is not true. They claim that Jews are more international, which is true to a degree, but which does not adequately explain how Jews can subvert entire nations from within. The truth is that, Christian or not, whites do not understand the facts that Jews forever favor Jews. Jews purposely lie to everyone else, and Jews operate more as a crime ring than as a race or religion. Once Christians began to accept Jews as peers in society, it was over. Imagine sheep accepting wolves as peers in the sheepfold. Pretty soon, there aren't going to be any more sheep. It's natural. It's the natural consequence. The Jews are actually history's oldest crime ring. However, the real reason why a handful of Jewish bankers and merchants are able to hold in subjection the entire Christian world, and therefore also all of the world's non-white races, the real reason is far deeper than even 
the best of historians or anthropologists can imagine. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And their kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they built up the high places and images and served Baal in the groves and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers and walked not in the way of the Lord. And they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. And wrath came upon them for this their trespass. And the children of evil, I'm sorry, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Edom. I'm sorry, that passage is not in the Bible. In the Scripture, it is not explicitly described that Yahweh God had ever delivered the children of Israel into the hand of Edom. However, there were certain that there certainly were warnings that the children of Israel would end up in subjection to Edom. But it never happened in antiquity. But if the book of books of Kings and Chronicles were still being recorded after nineteen thirteen, the account of that year would read very much like this passage supplied, which I just made up. In 1913, Yahweh certainly did deliver the children of Israel. into the hand of Edom. However, to understand such a statement, one would have to understand the truths of Christian Israel identity. Today's Jews are indeed descended from Esau, from the Edomians or Edomites of antiquity, something which can be proven in history and from the pages of the New Testament. Today's white Europeans, for the most part, are indeed descended from the ancient tribes of the children of Israel. And the prophets and the pages of the New Testament also demonstrate the truth of that assertion, which can be discovered in archaeology and history. Discovering these truths is the key to properly understanding both the Bible and history. Without these truths, you're going to understand nothing. The real reason why all of the nations once known as Christendom are currently dominated and enslaved by the Jewish Antichrist is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 27 here from the King James Version. And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. And, and there's absolute linguistic evidence that, that says thy dwelling shall be away from the fatness of the earth and away from 
the heaven from the dew of heaven from above. And by thy sword shalt thou live and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, then will I slay my brother Jacob. It's never fulfilled, but Esau is still trying to slay Jacob. Knowing who the parties are historically, <clears throat> there was only one time when Esau could have possibly broken his brother's yoke from off of his neck, the emancipation of the Jews in Europe in the early 19th century. While the word for dominion in that passage of Genesis is contested among the various translations, there are closely related Hebrew words which lend support to the interpretation. And the meaning of this passage, as it appears in the King James Version, is conveyed in other related biblical prophecies which must be referencing this very same event. Event. The Edomites were slaves of the children of Israel from the time of David and throughout most of the kingdom period. From then, the Edomites, or Edomians, were subjects of the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans. Throughout the medieval period, Jews in Europe were the chattel property of Christian kings, and they were never fellow citizens alongside Christians, until their emancipation began in France, which Napoleon then exported to most of the rest of Europe. While Jews had always sought to subvert Christendom, it was not until the destruction of the old feudal system with the French Revolution and their subsequent emancipation that they were able to rule over Christian nations. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will. The subject is the children of Israel. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. In 1913, ostensibly, Americans agreed. By not doing anything about it, Americans agreed. And they agreed over and over again. God put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Revelation 17:17. 17, 17. Without going into too many of the historic and biblical details, there are connections which must be made in order to understand the true nature of those who call themselves Jews. The children of Canaan had for centuries intermingled with the Kenites, the descendants of Cain, and with the Rephaim, the remnant of the giants, which is evident in Genesis chapter 15. 
And the true reason why Esau had lost his birthright was because he himself intermarried with them, which is evident from Genesis chapter 26, chapter 27, and Hebrews chapter 12 in the words of Paul. And Esau was 40 years old when he took the wife Judah, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Bashemath, the daughter of Elam the Hittite, which were of grief of mind to Isaac and to Rebekah. Genesis 26, 34, and 35. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Well, selling your birthright is not fornication or being profane. But Esau despised his birthright because he was a fornicator and he was a profane man. So therefore it meant nothing to him and he sold it for a morsel of meat. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Isaac said, I blessed your brother Jacob, and blessed he shall be. He didn't take it back. He refused. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, in the Revelation, in chapter 12, where there is a depiction of the dragon which seeks to devour the Christ child as soon as it is born. It is seen that Herod, the Edomite, who was the king of Judea, the birth of Christ, had fulfilled that role in history. Therefore, Herod, whom the historian Josephus explains at length, mentions four times that he was an Edomite. Herod was a living representative of the dragon. The dragon is an entity which in the Revelation is connected to the devil, to Satan, to that old serpent. From the pages of both Josephus and the New Testament, for instance, Romans chapter 9, it can be made absolutely clear that the Edomites had been taken into and had then eventually taken over Judea from the mid-2nd century B.C., to the time of Christ and beyond. In Luke chapter 11, Christ tells those in opposition to him that their race is responsible for the blood of Abel. That can only be justly attributed to Cain. In John chapter 8, Christ acknowledges that those in opposition to him were the seed of Abraham. In John chapter 10, he tells them that they're not his sheep. The only way that could be is if they descended from Esau. And were the seed of Abraham indeed, but they were not Israelites. Christ told them that they were of their father the devil, a murderer from the beginning, which can only be a reference to Cain. The children of Seth and the legitimate descendants of Jacob cannot be described by any of these statements. Therefore, we see corroboration of the words of Paul concerning Esau in Hebrews and concerning the descendants of Esau in Romans chapter 9. The Edomites collectively are indeed representative of the dragon, the devil, and Satan. As it is further described in Revelation chapter 12, after the dragon embodied in the Edomite king Herod in the fulfillment of 
the particular prophecy, but also represented by the Edomites of Judea in general, after the dragon had attempted to slay the Christ child, it is then depicted as going to make war with the remnant of the seed of the woman, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This alone explains the struggle between Jew and so-called Gentile, the persistent contention between the Jews and Christendom, which has endured these past 20 centuries and which continues today. It also explains why Jewry had been so successful a criminal enterprise throughout history. It is their genetic nature to function in such a manner. I know thy works and thy tribulation in poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. These people claiming to be Jews or to be Judeans or Judah, they are not. They're lying. They're devils. Why don't Christians believe the simple words of Christ? The Apostle John informs us of the nature of the Antichrist, where he says in his epistles, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not at all of us. 1 John chapter 2. The apostle is telling us that there are, at his time, many antichrists. Today, there are many more. John defines the Antichrist in that same chapter as he that denies that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. He also informs us that they went out from us, but they were not of us. I don't know why Christians don't get that. These people that deny that Jesus is the Christ, they went out from the Judeans, but they were not of the Judeans. Ostensibly, John is writing these epistles after his return to Ephesus from Patmos when his exile ended upon the death of Domitian after 96 AD. Jerusalem is already destroyed. Many of the Jews opposed to Christ had already been scattered. They went out from us, but they were not of us because they deny that Jesus is the Christ. Those who John describes, those who deny Christ, must have been Edomites. And therefore, in John's, God, in, in John's epistle is further testimony to this interpretation of the words in his gospel 
in the Revelation, in the Gospel of Luke, and in Paul's epistle to the Romans, which we have just recounted. The Edomites, children of both Esau and Cain, were devils and Satans and Antichrists, yet, because they could claim to be children of Esau, they could claim to be Abraham's seed. All of their children are devils and Satans and Antichrist still pretending to be Jews or Judah today. They have made a war against the true children of God, the nations of Christendom, for as long as history has been recorded. The remnant of the white race of today are indeed descended primarily from the children of Israel. And Israel has been in captivity ever since the remainder of them were taken out of their ancient land by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, long before the time of Christ. For 1,200 years, they were subject to the ancient empires, the Assyrian, the Persian, the Babylonian, the Greek, the Roman, even though the Greek and the Roman empires consisted primarily of the children of Israel scattered long before those Assyrian deportations. Twelve hundred years were the children of Israel subject to the ancient empires, which are depicted in the Bible as beasts, the beast empires, man ruling with the laws of man rather than the laws of God. And from the fall of Rome, they were subject to the tyranny of popes and kings. In Revelation chapter 13, we learn that it is the dragon from whence the beast derives its power. And therefore, it is made evident that the ancient empires were formed through the power of the world's merchants, usurers, and antichrists. A study of history would certainly vindicate the scripture. With the end of the old system of tyrannies and with the dawn of parliamentary democracy after the emancipation of the Jew, the children of Israel have lived under a delusion of self-government where they, would, where they have rather been more directly subject to the Jewish bankers. We stepped out of the frying pan and into the proverbial fire. These are the words of Isaac fulfilled, that when Esau gained the dominion, he would also break Jacob's yoke from his neck. For lo, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith Yahweh, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Well, this happened, I believe, in the First World War. And although the children of Judah and Israel possessed the land, they did not inhabit it. Rather, it has only caused more war. So it's necessary to understand the rest of this prophecy and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. 
And these are the words that Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith Yahweh, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. The children of Israel come back to possess the land, but they don't have peace. Ask ye now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned to paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 3 through 7. Now I will cite Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. In this era of delusion, Satan, the Jews, has escaped out of the pit. The pit was capitulation to the Christian princes of Europe and ostracism from European society, which they suffered for a thousand years. In this, era of, in this era of delusion, Satan has escaped out of the pit to deceive all the nations. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 should be understood without the lengthy interpolation of verse 5a. Verse 5a does not belong there. And today, all the nations being deceived, even a majority of the children of Israel have joined with the Antichrist. The time of Jacob's trouble, which we see in Jeremiah chapter 30, in Daniel chapter 12, and I believe, right from Isaac's words to Esau after he blessed Jacob, the time of Jacob's trouble is fully explained by all of the Christian suffering under the heel of the Jewish bankers. Over 100 million people died in the period between the beginning of the First World War and the end of the Second. Over 100 million white Christians, mostly in Europe, died in that period died miserable deaths in war or in famine. This period must be congruent to Daniel's time of trouble, which is explained where every time a great white leader has stood up for his people, he has been destroyed by world Jewry. 
The signal examples of this are found in Russia in 1917 and in Germany in 1918 and 1945, especially Jewish communism, Jewish capitalism, the world wars and the persistent state of war, the economic recessions and depressions, the Jewish immigration agenda, all of these direct us towards the destruction of our white race, this is the culmination of the war of the dragon against the seed of the woman, and the alien masses are indeed the flood from the mouth of the serpent. And anybody, any Christian, especially in Christian identity, who tries to get us to accept these alien masses, which are the flood from the mouth of the serpent, that man is a fraud, a huckster, and almost certainly a damned Jew and an infiltrator. The name Michael, Daniel 12, the name Michael means who is like God. The Bible tells us that Christ himself shall save his people, and that, as even Paul quotes, vengeance is mine, saith Yahweh. And therefore, no man can arise who will successfully battle the dragon, world Jewry, on his own terms. This alone explains how seemingly easy it was for the Jews to overthrow the Tsar, for the Kaiser's Germany to snatch a miserable defeat from the jaws of a once in inevitable victory, and for the defeat of Hitler, even though Hitler certainly merited all the prayers of success. Michael, who is like God? Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, 
Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God. Niggers and Jews are on a menu. That you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Those poor birds. There's a longer list of entrees. <laughs> the God of Israel is indeed a God of war, and nothing has changed since the remotest antiquity. This is the Christian hope. It is the only valid white hope. It is the only way we are going to be free from these Edomite Jew bastards. The destruction of the Antichrist and the fulfillment of the words concerning Esau found in the prophets Obadiah and Malachi, which alone forebode the absolute end of world Jewry. Actually, Obadiah describes the Holocaust that we owe the bastards. And all of the wicked beasts who are presently gorging themselves on the mountain of God will be destroyed along with them. The mountain of God being the children of Israel. Only by turning to Christ can our race find repentance and then realize an end to their slavery. There are two obstacles, two giant obstacles to repentance. I hope to illustrate them now. The first obstacle to repentance, the slave mentality of the true Israelite people is exhibited in the Exodus. And once you realize this, you'll understand the mentality of our people today. You'll understand how they could be like they are, so blind to their own slavery to be comfortable in it. The original Hebrews were, of course, white, and the ancestor of most of today's Europeans. Whites today love to glorify their love for liberty. However, whites today surely do not exemplify a true love for liberty. Rather, most whites today are happy in a state of slavery, so long as they are comfortable. This is the biggest challenge which identity Christians face in urging their kinsmen to awareness. From Exodus chapter 2, from verse 11. And it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew. One of his brethren, 
today's equivalent would be perhaps a Jew lawyer suing a white man. And he looked this way and that. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out on the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? Why do you smite your brother? And he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. The government sought to file a civil rights suit, perhaps, in today's terms. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in a land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses clearly had a greater love for the men of his own race than he had for his own exalted position in the household and government of Pharaoh. So he risked that position for the benefit of his kinsmen. This event is offered in Scripture as the very reason why Moses was chosen for the position he was given as a great leader in Israel, that he loved his race above his own personal interests. However, the people of his race, those who he was trying to help, they despised him for his involvement and his beckoning them to love one another on the basis of their being kinsmen. Today, today, there are thousands of men like Moses, and most of them Most of them are identity Christians. They have this same basic message. And many of them take risks similar to Moses, if even on a smaller scale. And they are frustrated at their lack of success in convincing their brethren of frustration, which clearly... Moses must have also experienced. What they must learn from Exodus chapter 2 is that even Moses had to flee from the face of Pharaoh and live in exile for 40 years. After he had done that, and before God decided to call him back, and appoint him to success. So no matter our concern for our brethren, for our race, no matter our leadership capabilities, our education, our stature, 
we're not going to have success until the day that Yahweh decides to appoint us to that success. We'll have to sit our 40 years in the desert. Well, a lot of people have probably already sat their 40 years in the desert. That's just the way it is. We're on Yahweh's time. The second obstacle to repentance, Christian Zionism. In addition to this same slave mentality that our forefathers had, and which is fully evident among our people today, there is another dynamic in place which is also foretold in Scripture and which now hampers the awakening of whites. That dynamic is Christian Zionism. Right, I refuse to say Zionism. The, the actual Greek would be pronounced Zion. So I'll pronounce it that way because it pisses the Jews off. As incredible as it may sound, Christian Zionism is indeed prophesied in Scripture. I discussed this in a podcast I presented on a prophecy of Malachi in September of 2011. So long as Christian Zionism persists, whites shall be found worshipping Jews rather than worshipping God. Christian Zionism replaces Christ with Jews. It's incredible. Thank Schofield and Bullinger. All of this was set up by these damn Edomite bastards. There's no doubt. Malachi was a prophet of the Second Temple period. His writing fully indicates that the temple was already rebuilt and in use when he wrote, ostensibly the experience which Ezra and Nehemiah had with race mixers among those who returned to Jerusalem, for which we can refer to Ezra chapter 10, that experience was fully known to Malachi, and this prophecy addresses that same problem in prophetic language. It is both fitting and correct that Malachi's book is the last of the books included in the Old Testament. When he prophesied, Jerusalem was already rebuilt, at least for the most part. So the rebuilding that he talks about here can't be of the Jerusalem in his day, because Jerusalem, the temple, the walls, they were already up. From the opening chapter of Malachi, the first verses, from verse 1, the burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, saith Yahweh. Yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith Yahweh, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage Waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, this is a two-part 
prophecy here. These, these five verses, the first part has to do with Jacob and, and Jacob's attitude. The second part has to do with Esau and Esau's attitude. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished. Tell me that doesn't sound like a Jew. But we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, Yahweh will be magnified from the border of Israel. Perfect Jewish attitude, rebuilding Palestine today. We're poor. We're going to take donations from the Americans and the Brits. We're going to collect in all the churches. We need money, but we're going to return and build the desolate places. We're going to return and build Palestine. Tell me that's not a perfect prophecy of modern Zionism. As the Israelites did in the Second Temple period, so they do today. They have accepted the children of Esau and brought them into their polity or fellow citizenship. Yet the children of Esau were and still are hated by God today. Being those who rejected Christ as Messiah, the children of Esau are for the most part known as Jews. The rebuilding of which Malachi prophecies cannot be the rebuilding of Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, as that rebuilding had already taken place by the time of Malachi, and the Edomites clearly had no part in it. Rather, the prophet Daniel foretold that Jerusalem would be laid waste after the cutting off of the Messiah, after which the Edomite Jews were driven out and the rebuilding therefore, must refer to the rebuilding of Jerusalem in modern times. That must be what Malachi is talking about, with the restoration of the Edomite Jews to the city under the name of Israel. Most white Christians today, although in truth they are Jacob, they erroneously think that the Edomites are Israel. And under this deception, they are actually and this is the, the, the exact attitude of white Judeo-Christians today, they are actually more concerned with Esau than they are with their own race, than they are with their own Christian brethren. Therefore, the word of Yahweh through Malachi in a prophetic dialogue depicts Israel as saying, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? And Yahweh answers, I love Jacob and I hated Esau, which Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9 in order to distinguish the Judeans of his time who consisted of both Jacob and Esau. This prophetic dialogue warns us that Jacob would be unjustly concerned with Esau, as Esau claims poverty and goes to return to build the desolate places. 
a reference to that Jerusalem which Christ said would be left to them desolate. This is indeed a prophecy of Christian Zionism and a perfect reflection of Judeo-Christian and relations to Jews the last hundred years, enabled empowered by the Schofield and Bollinger Bibles and world Jewish financial power. Judeo-Christianity is the best religion the Jews can buy. This is indeed a prophecy of Christian Zionism, and it is only fulfilled in Christian Zionism. Yahweh, God says, I love Jacob and I hated Esau. And this demonstrates his hatred of Christian Zionism. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their, heal their land. The road to white repentance is going to be quite difficult, but there is no salvation until it is accomplished. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Tomorrow night, Pastor Mark Downey, who hates Christian identity and why? That should be interesting. I'll be here next week. Ostensibly, I plan on it anyway. I'll be here with the opening to my presentation of the prophecy of Micah. Praise Yahweh, and good night.